Welcome to the Cine Meh Podcast, a place to discuss and deconstruct perfectly average movies. Not good movies, not bad movies, just fine movies. So fine, in fact, you probably forgot they even exist. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. I'm Joshua. And while we may not be nearly as forgettable as these films, we probably run a close second. That's right. Adequate films for adequate folk. Josh, what do you got for me today? Welcome back. It is, what are we on this season? Episode seven already? Something like that, yeah. I think we're at the midway point already this season. I know. Good morning. You uh, you look like right now just the lighting or whatever. It looks like you might be broadcasting from the end of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Like you've got, you, you look like you might be broadcasting from hell. <laughs> There's a lot of red undertone going on. A lot of uplighting. So um, I, I, you know, I'm in, I'm in my new place, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I have a a solitary small window in front of me, uh, looking out at at the world, um, and <laughs> it, it it's a very gray morning here in in Tennessee, and so the only way for me to have any kind of lighting is to have my task lighting on. So my task lighting you can't see it is this little like strip lamp right that that sits above my keyboard, um, but it's kind of an amber lighting so that it's easier on the eyes and. There is, it's very cloudy, like I said, there, there's no light coming in through the window. So the only light really that you're seeing is this task lighting bouncing up off of my keyboard and coming back at me. And so it's get, it's got that amber reddish glow to it. And um, if I were to put on my screen glasses, they would literally cast shadows that would look like devilish eyebrows up above my... Ah, uh, we've, we've got a missed opportunity, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's spooky season, come on. I'll I'll tell you what for for uh, next week I'll show you what that looks like because it's it's pretty wild. I, at that point we're gonna have to start releasing uh, video episodes though because everybody's gonna be like <laughs> we've heard about the wine goblet we've heard about the the crazy aliens hair and the 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 devil eyebrows like they're gonna the people are gonna demand to see us. I mean if the people demand we will give them what they want. Mm-hmm. But they have to actually give us feedback. Okay, well, I mean, that's fair. Maybe I'll, I'll put that in the show notes too. Is uh, hey, if you want to see it, we're we're gonna need uh, we're gonna need some some actual feedback on this. So, well, before we dive into the film of the week, yeah, I have a little bit of uh, tie-in news. Okay, to our podcast, uh, we recently discussed Lara Croft Tomb Raider. <laughs> yes, and uh, the latest Nintendo Direct had announced that. The Lara Croft trilogy, the original trilogy, is getting a remaster. Really? Yeah. It's getting a remaster release. It, is it coming out on Switch? If Nintendo Direct is doing it, they're the it will be on the Switch. We'll I don't know if it's out. just Switch. But okay. yeah, Nintendo announced that it was coming. Uh, that's kind of cool. It is. Lara Croft is also getting a Netflix like anime style series. I feel like this is less cool. She's not as busty. I'll just we, we, I no, just like we don't need to serialize everything. <laughs> we need to maximize profit, sir. <laughs> it's just, we it's, need to milk every IP for all it's worth. It's usually the other podcast that I complain about late stage capitalist hellscape. And now here I am, like very much caught in the, the the moment, being like, "Oh my god, why? Why are we? Why?" Well, why not revisit Tomb Raider on the that that side, like? You want to keep it to just video games? I suppose. I mean, to be honest, um, something like Tomb Raider is probably one of the few storylines that uh, in video games that lends itself well to a series, right? Because it's it could just be you know like a a monster of the week where you know Laura is going off and raiding X Y Z tomb here, X Y Z tomb. You know what? I I deign to say, if they did it right. There's even a possibility they could make it somewhat educational because they could actually talk about other cultures and histories that she is, uh, I mean, obviously tomb okay. raiding from. But Slayer Roll, the San Carmen San Diego. <laughs> yeah, <All right. laughs> that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, I always picture a Carmen San Diego, like if you made a Carmen San Diego series now, which I think they do have like a junior like Netflix show as well. Okay. Yeah, but she's like a protagonist. I'm like, no, she needs to be the villain. But I want her to kind of do it Dora the Explorer style, where like as she's like in the narrative, she just stops and she's like, "Did you know the Leaning Tower of Pizza was built?" And did like talking to the audience for like a couple of minutes, and then just back in the narrative. I I think that'd be fantastic. 
I also don't hate the idea of Carmen Sandiego being maybe not a hero, but certainly like an anti-hero. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, you, you sort of like in, like let's be honest, Indiana Jones, he stole some shit, right? Like his hands are not clean. The man was an international criminal. He he just was. Now his priority was always to return the artifacts he stole to places where they could be uh you know viewed and protected and all that but that does open up uh, a whole other little weird can of worms as we start to understand how many stolen things are in the british museums um (laughs) all that aside we still largely view indiana jones as the hero um and uh i i could see carmen san diego or alora croft fitting that role nicely it's it's lara sir i'm sorry lara lara croft um also a new prince of persia game is coming well, that's also timely. announced. And I was like, oh, perfect, Nintendo. <laughs> uh, are they going to stick to the more like linear formula of Prince of Persia? Or are they going to do, because everything has to be these days, open world? This looks like it's more linear. Okay. And going back to really exploring some of the roots of the Pr- Prince of Persia franchise. Okay. All right, that's cool. We can explore what that means a little bit. As we dive into our film of the week, <laughs> which is in fact Prince of Persia. Um, before we jump like right right into this, I uh, I, I do want to call out a couple of like milestones that we've we've missed. Um, we have had our eleven uh, hundredth listen uh, as of uh, as of this week. So. Woo! Uh, of all the episodes that we have uh, put out into the world, we've had um, 1,100 listens so far on this podcast. So we kind of blew right past the thousand mark. I, I sort of missed that one, but it's it's just it's it's just really cool, right? Like it's it's uh, it just one of those fun things that I think we should pause and celebrate. Um, so that's that's neat. Uh, that being said, this movie was not neat, uh, and uh, I'm I, I I'm very curious to get your your thoughts on this film, Josh, because I struggled with this one. <laughs> this movie is a fun romp with some glaring problems. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, glaring problems is sort of putting it... I mean, here's the thing. Do we, do we, do we want to just jump right into, like, the... Where, where do you want to start this episode? <laughs> How do you want to kick this thing off? Well, we'll start at the beginning. The Prince okay. of Persia, Sands of Time, came out in... 2010. Mm-hmm. This is a 2010 film. I honestly, I thought it was 2007, but I was, nope. I would, I would have expected this to be a little bit older than 2010. Slightly yeah. earlier, yeah. No, directed by Mike Newell, written by Boaz Yakin, Doug Miro, and Carlo Bernard. I can't even read my own writing. Uh, <laughs> or uh, Carlo Bermand. Um, Doug and Carlo are two people that they look like they just like they kind of workshop scripts. Got it for Disney because okay. I like I was like oh you guys have worked together on a couple of things, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Boaz uh, Yakin we believe is is probably the the primary um, scriptwriter for this. He, he might be the person that came with the like script or story adaptation. Gotcha. Um, I also know they worked a lot with the Prince of Persia creator. Yes, uh, John M- Minchin. Yep. Where is I can't swear I can't read my stuff. Um, it's, this movie is taking its title and loosely its plot line from the Prince of Persia Sands of Time video game. Right. Which, which that was, a that was originally, was it PlayStation one or two? I want to say it's two. Two. Cause I remember it was on Xbox, like right. the first Xbox, not to be confused with Xbox one. <laughs> um, it was on the, the original Xbox and it was a, it was a good game. Yeah, it was. It's super, was, super cool. I was not aware of the franchise prior to Sands of Time. So I um, I, I think that uh, it actually has a cool, it has kind of a cool history um, because the, the Prince of Persia video games were always a little bit groundbreaking in the way that they, um, the way that they operated. So the, the very first ones were actually on Super Nintendo um, and they used rotoscoping graphics, which had never been done before. And so it created this very smooth animation style that looked way ahead of its time. 
Um, I mean, now we look back on it and it looks pretty archaic, but if you compare it to, you know, the, the way that things were pixelated back in, you know, the, the early 1990s, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, and it was, it, it played with the fast forward rewind time idea where you would move through a room only to discover how terribly it was trapped and then utilize your knowledge to try and go back through and uh, accomplish it without being killed by the traps. Um, it's a neat it, mechanic for like restarting yes a, a level you know you kind of yeah. kind of make it part of the game exactly yeah exactly and so um prince of persia actually has a, it's it's not one of the the more known like when we think of like some of the best known video game franchises um anymore you think of like call of duty and modern warfare you think of halo you think of legend of zelda or metroid or super mario brothers prince of persia actually does have kind of an interesting like little um, niche in in the video game world, and it's it's had some really cool ideas in video gaming. Well, and we we now we, we live in an age where like if a franchise uh, goes on ice for a while, disappears, gets in a licensing hell or whatever, you you have uh, people that make these games that are considered like spiritual successors. Yes, you know they're not necessarily they're not officially part of this, but you could kind of see where it's coming from. Yeah. And for Prince of Persia, this I didn't know, but it makes total sense. What is widely considered a spiritual successor to Prince of Persia is Assassin's Creed. Oh, yes. Yes. And it from and actually from some of what I read into about this movie, there is a lot of Assassin's Creed crossover. Like they pull bits and pieces of Assassin's Creed style um I was going to say gameplay, but some of the cinematics and even some of like the in in references is Assassin's Creed. And uh, oh, that makes yeah, sense. yeah. So uh, like, there's a, a like a very very specific example is there's a, a shot where um, Dastan climbs up on top of this tower to like get a better view of everything around him um, before like diving back into the city, and that is a hundred percent out of Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed was like one of the first games to do the idea of climb a tower to reveal parts of the map and and get a better view of where you need to go next before jumping back into uh, into the the actual gameplay. And uh, that was not a Prince of Persia mechanic. It was from uh, Assassin's Creed. And so, and, a- and actually the uh, assassin-like clan that comes after him later on in this movie, um, directly inspired by Assassin's Creed. So Prince of Persia Sands of Time is about a street urchin not named Aladdin that <laughs> is adopted by the royal family and... Um, becomes one of the princes of Persia and he helps storm the city. He gets a hold of this really funky ornate looking ceremonial dagger because you would not use this dagger for fighting. It's no, very ceremonial. Not. It's very ceremonial. And then shit goes down. He gets framed for regicide, mm-hmm. the murder of his adopted father. And he has to go on the run with a priestess who hates him but secretly wants to have sex with him. And uh, clear his name and figure out what's what, what the whole deal is with this dagger that seems to hold the sands of time. Yeah, um, <clears throat> not a terribly uninteresting premise on the face. Uh, I'm I'm not in love with the total execution, which we I mean we can get into all of this as as we kind of break it down. Um, this movie begins with a huge and then, and we discussed this uh, a couple weeks ago in Laura Croft where. Um, you never want your script to have a a beat of and then. It should always be kind of a because or which led to, you know, there should be some kind of tie-in. The, he displays courage in the marketplace so the king adopts him feels like a massive and then. I wanted a slightly better explanation of how he ended up with the royal family. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of weird that the king is just like, this kid's got a little hutzpah in him. Yeah, yeah, bring I'll, him into I'll, the kingdom. I'll take him as another son, even though I already have two. Like, why? Because he is defiant. Yeah, right. like uh, that's that's not that that's not how that would have worked. <laughs> here's how they could have, because here's the parallel that I drew. That I was like, they could have made this a little more. Like, they could have given this to the audience a little bit more. Yeah, in the marketplace. Yeah, Dastin saves his street brother. Right. Basically, mm-hmm. from the fury and punishment of uh, the, ro- the royal guards and everything. Right. The king, no doubt, senses a kindred spirit in this because of the story plot line of how 
his brother saved him when they were kids from the lion or whatever it was. And so in that moment, he has a certain kinship with that. And he's like, oh, my God, he looks out for his his family. I, you know, I'm I'm a beneficiary of that. I could return that. I, I that's a more complete idea. I like that more than just, oh, he has courage. Bring him into the royal family. Okay, so Dastan hit the royal lottery, and uh... he absolutely did. <laughs> his his best homie Biz is you know the head of his leader of scrappy fighters, but he is clearly not living the sweet life either. No, he's not. He's probably okay, but right. he's, he's not living it up. And so so we get this moment. He's adopted into the royal family, and then it, it kind of we have a, a fast forwarding of the timeline to what we're meant to believe is like basically present day in the film. Um, and this is a, this is a moment where the, the movie is like, we have to reestablish everything you already know about Dastan. So we've already shown that he's defiant, that he is resourceful and scrappy, um, that he is a fighter because you know, that that's who he had to be to, to survive on, on the, the streets or, or whatever. So we, we already know all this. And then during the the royal council at the very beginning on deciding, you know, like where they're going to invade, he's missing. Why? Because he's off just fighting with people. Uh, so it's like... You need to show that he has not gone soft. I he argue he still, would have. <laughs> he is still he, he of would the have. people. No, right. But that's the thing. That's the whole point. Is like yeah. he has not. I know. He has managed to retain his street ratness yeah i'm gonna keep going with the aladdin parallels well and and that's the thing is there is a lot of this movie that um is very aladdin uh and uh i don't know that i think that this is the better of the live action movies between live action aladdin and prince of persia but it does remind me of a meme that i saw it was the um the final scene in joker where joker is talking to uh robert de niro's talk show character and the meme caption is Robert De Niro's talk show host is saying, uh, you're telling me that you think Spaceballs is a more faithful representation of the Star Wars canon than any of the new trilogy. And Joker responds, it is, and I'm tired of pretending like it's not. Um, <laughs> this is a movie that I feel like maybe is more faithful of a representation to Aladdin uh, than uh, the Aladdin movie. Um, but it still has its own problems and is still more of a spoof, I feel like, of uh, Middle Eastern lore and mythology. Yeah, there's a lot of this that would not hold up under a historical lens. Um, and we can get into, we can go ahead and get into the glaring hole. So I am not normally this sensitive to this in films i'm i'm somebody i think on this podcast that has advocated in the past that actors should be able to act they should be able to pretend to be something that they are not um now i think that that's there's a degree of within reason that should come along with that um and one thing that i i don't necessarily agree with is uh or necessarily i don't at all agree with is cultural appropriation this movie gets really, really close to brownface at almost every turn. Um, And the fact that we have a film full of white people acting as Middle Easterners that to make it like to really rub salt in this wound, all speak with British accents. It could not be it could not be more colonial. It could not be more colonialist. It is so uncomfortable once you you see it. And, and I think the the worst offender of this, and I, I don't believe this to be her fault, I just believe, which I also want to get into how uh, she was cast because it's delightfully creepy. Um, Gemma Arterton as the, the high priestess, she, if you remember her as Io from Clash of the Titans, which was kind of her breakout role, the woman is translucent, you know, like is not somebody who tans in the sun, but just cuts immediately to burns. I know because I am that kind of white as well. Like we, you just, you have a pale complexion and that's okay, but maybe don't 
paint her up to look Middle Eastern because it once you've become aware of it, it just gets more and more uncomfortable as the film goes on. It's it's not great. Uh, what <laughs> what I what I think is kind of interesting in particular about her casting is that it seems like um, I was going through the IMDb trivia. And it seems like it was between Gemma and an Iranian star named uh, Golfishteh Fahrani, yes. which I did completely wrong pronunciation, so I apologize. Um, the Iranian star was arrested at the airport. I, exactly. So first of all, that's tragic. And that's, you know, just part of like the and again, not to get too much into like current events, because that's our other podcast. But that is that's just a it's a. a an example of the the kind of repressive regimes that people in the Middle East have to fight against in order to have appropriate representation in Hollywood. Um, but I also don't think that they, you know, like the, the, I, I still feel like they had other options. And the fact that it was between this one Iranian actress and this British woman still feels like a, a failure of casting. The director... Yes director also said he cast her because when he saw the back of her neck he became very aware of how old he was and i have what never does that mean i it's the most like lecherous thing i think i've like ever seen put to quotes like that was the so he was a longtime friend of jake gyllenhaal which is why he wanted jake gyllenhaal in this film but he wanted Gemma Arterton because she made him realize how old he was. And all I can think of is he's like, I took one look at this woman and realized that she would never sleep with me. And I'm, I was just like grossed out by the whole idea of all of this. Like the, the casting to this film just makes me uncomfortable. But OK, but why the neck? I mean, who knows? <laughs> I guess just... we all have our things, but I'm just very yeah. curious about... Uh, the back of her neck. I'm gonna, God, I'm gonna start staring at my wife's neck and see if I can like figure out what it, the if thing it triggers is. anything. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, because I don't get it. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, okay, but yeah, yep. uh, Gemma Art Arterton. Yeah, if you mm -hmm. you've seen her in Clash of the Titans, uh, she also did a Hansel and Gretel, yes, movie with Jeremy Renner, which I actually enjoy that movie. It's not great, but it's a movie I but enjoy. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like they basically become witch hunters, and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty entertaining. That's one we should cover someday. Yeah, we, we might. And uh, she, I first saw her in the Bond film Quantum of Solace. Ah, uh, that's right. She, she is Strawberry Fields. Strawberry. <laughs> she is hilariously British and white. Yep. And they drown her in oil, don't they? Yeah, she is. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of a, a nod to Goldfinger. Right. Um. Yeah, she is covered inside and out with with oil. She's she's there for a second, but she said her name is Strawberry Fields, and like Daniel Craig's Bond just kind of smirks, and they sleep together. Yeah, because that's that's what Bond does. Um, that's what Bond does. Uh, side, I'm going to do a quick little side tangent about Quantum of Solace. By the way, great. Um, I think a lot of people that have seen the Daniel Craig films would argue that Quantum of Solace is probably the weakest film. Yeah, it's a pretty meh film. I'm going to advocate if people watch Quantum of Solace, you need to watch it right after Casino Royale because it just continues that Casino Royale story. And it, But it came out like three years later, wasn't it? Like there was a gap and long enough yeah, that people it, forgot like how Casino Royale left off. Yeah. Yeah. But it just it starts. You're like, whoa, what's happening? And then yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, because at the end of the movie three years ago, like, yeah, you need to watch them back to back. It's a more complete story because I mean, the, 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 the threads overlap. That, that's how, um, like, Skyfall and uh, Spectre are. Like, the, the two movies are directly. Not, not Skyfall, but Spectre and um, whatever his last movie's oh, name oh, oh, was. Oh, No Time to Die. Sorry, yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. the, yeah. Those, yeah, those two are another ones, like, you need to watch them back, back to back. back. If you have yeah. that kind of time. <laughs> um, because it's, it makes it a much more enjoyable adventure. Sure. Because it makes, it makes more sense. I'll tell you what made and, this movie an enjoyable uh, adventure was Alfred Molina. I, uh, that guy still completely object to the casting, but the man owns the crap out of his role in this. Like he is, he is one of the better realized characters and he makes me fucking laugh every time he's on screen. Well, and we could probably waffle on whatever, uh, 
like nationality like nationality he's supposed to be that's because he point. very he he lambasts Dastin like every time he he can he constantly spits Persian uh, at that's, him that's true so you're like okay so his character is not Persian maybe he's maybe one of the people that are subjected by the Persians but still like where in this area did he come from <laughs> is he from I, I I I just I absolutely adore him um he is one of the he is simultaneously one of the least video game characters in the whole movie and also one of the most like I could very very much see him in like a traditional RPG some like a character that has that much personality would fit well into an RPG but as far as like being an NPC in any other game that's just like pointing you to your next waypoint he has way too much going on um and I I love he, he has so many delicious layers um the fact that he can turn from being you know this kind of rabble rouser talking about taxes <laughs> the, the whole taxes thing was the so whole ridiculous. taxes yep and then flip to being like this genuinely sinister presence you know when when he's not getting what he wants um god alfred molina is just he's awesome he's awesome yeah and his character is kind of a trope in cinema um like that you you can pull that out of any um well really like kind of any period piece that kind of deals with the Middle East. Yeah. Where you have a smarmy, but maybe kind of also kind of, you know, slimy. Uh, like he's, he's like kind of almost like the guide character. That's not exactly on the up and up. He's going to yeah. screw you over <laughs> the, at some point. Uh, what is it? The uh, also makes uh, julienne fries. And I promise you, it will not break. It broke. It broke. It broke. This is the Dead Sea Tupperware. <laughs> Still good. Still good. <laughs> that is all stuff, by the way. Yeah, we're, we're referencing Aladdin here at this point. Once uh, again, yeah. That is all stuff I never got as a kid. Right. I was just like, oh, it's a weird guy just being goofy. Making goofy noises, yep. Uh, I appreciate it so much more as an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but yes, Melina's um, hustler character that runs ostrich races ostrich. <laughs> i i love that you're like waiting for it to be something far more salacious and then it's <laughs> it turns out it's ostrich races and it's it's ostrich like, races and he's got these server girls that's very like i was like this this whole thing doesn't fit like the time period yeah in my head but we're also in a fantasy world so i guess you can get away with it <laughs> i i think my favorite line of his is <laughs> Something along the lines of, do you know how difficult it is to run an ostrich race with one ostrich? You can't do it. <laughs> I know, because he just has the one left. He and he takes such good care left. of her. He does. I, I appreciate that about him. Shout out to that ostrich. Uh, Shout out to figure out the name of that ostrich, but it's great. Yeah. Uh, but yes, he's he's wonderful. And uh, the, reoccurring, um, the reoccurring bit about the Mbaka. Yes. <laughs> Have I told you about the Mbaka? <laughs> um, yes. A, a real, uh, I would ask you, argue probably the most perfectly developed character because he's there enough, but not too much. Yeah. Was the Mbaka. Yeah. Uh, Steve Toussaint. Uh, he does, he does great. He gets his, his battle moment. It's, mm -hmm. it's fantastic. So as far as the, um, like the the actual storyline of this film because it's the 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 dagger itself which you know like contains the sands of time which it, it, it takes a while to even build up to get to the dagger and then to understand like how the dagger works and all that but it really is kind of a macguffin right like it it doesn't have a ton of bearing on the actual plot because this this whole movie could have been done differently and more as a political intrigue by removing the magical dagger and it just being a story about a guy who wants to become king and sees his three nephews as being in the way of that. That's boring. <laughs> we need a magical MacGuffin. No, it, well, and that's the thing is I like one of the things that I think bugged me about this movie um, in in its execution is that I felt like it really did miss an opportunity to do something that is more closely tied to the, the rich mysticism and mythology of uh, Middle Eastern lore. Like, you know, A Thousand and One uh, Nights, um, for all its terrible colonialist interpretation flaws, uh, 
is still a very uh, like it's a it's a deep text and and it has um, it, it it presents a really really um, compelling world. That I, I know, like the Prince of Persia games have like nothing to do with a uh, thousand and one nights, but um, I, like I, I just I saw I, I saw more opportunity to draw on the true mythology um, and uh, and the true like rich history of the Middle East for this movie to to act on, and it's it's all just yeah magical dagger MacGuffin. So in the video game, in the Sands of Time game, yeah, things actually go a little bit further. The uh, vizier, whose name is Jafar, by the way, in the game. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm not. It's a very common name. It's probably like John. That's in, excellent. And, but yes, the vizier's name was Jafar. Uh, you can see why they would probably not go with that in yep. the film adaptation. But he tricks Dastin basically into using the, ga- the, the dagger to unlock the hourglass and releasing the sands of time. Right. And that is early game. Okay. Because that happens, and then the game is basically Dastin on the quest to try to fix this. Okay. Whereas the movie kind of shies away with it, and the uh, unlocking of the hourglass becomes the big finale. Right. I'm trying to decide which I think would have made the better movie. I actually, I like that. I, I I like the video game storyline better. I think the video game story w- would have been much better. Like you have yeah. the the film went a little tighter and made it a more personal devastating conflict with, um, you know, because throughout the whole movie, like everyone he cares about dies. Right. You know, he, 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 his, his father figure dies and it's blamed on him and he spends mm-hmm. much of the movie, uh, well, half the movie thinking, oh, it's his eldest brother set right. him up. And then he finds out, oh no, it was his dastardly uncle. And then he reconciles with the second brother only for the second brother to die. He reconciles with the eldest brother, the one who would be the king, yep. and then he dies. Yeah. And so going through all of that, I think it's great that we have the finale MacGuffin that we have. Yeah. Which does keep in line with the video game where he resets. Yeah. The, the video game ends with him resetting. He undoes all that. Um, and then... He has to fight his the, the vizier. He has to fight Jafar. Um, again, so basically, <clears throat> this ending too, because um, I, I think this is one of the reasons that I'm left so unsatisfied with with this movie. Is again, this movie begins on an end, then, and it ends on an end. Then there is, considering they have established that Dastan is this sort of. Again, kind of like rabble rouser character who, still very close to his like street roots or or, or whatever, um, in the big reset when he takes the time all the way back to before you know the the first you know before even discovering the dagger, um, he basically has to convince his brothers that their uncle is plotting to kill everybody because they love each other as brothers so much. That's why they should believe him is because their brotherly bond is so strong and and that's the reason they should it, it, like I, I I there was something I was like there's just there is something missing here this 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 is not enough this the, is not the, enough <laughs> the film is trying to show you trying to convince you that their brotherly bond is more real and is stronger than the one between the king and his vizier. And and metaphorically, I I appreciate that, right? Like I get where they're they're coming from. <laughs> In terms of storytelling, no, like <laughs> it didn't go that way the first time. That's the thing is it it he Dastan tries to drive the direction of that battle in the first it, 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 at the beginning of the movie, and they don't listen to him. They're like, no. You're, you know, you're a good fighter. You're not ready to like to lead or or to think like strategically. So why, in the second pass through, when we take a, another whack at this conversation, where ostensibly all of their memories are back to, you know, he's the only one that has knowledge of the future. Why would uh, this time be the time that they're like, oh yeah, no, it, it, this actually okay. So let's let's clarify the timeline here. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So That's, so yeah, the first they're like. Oh, Alamet is betrayed us in arming our enemies, and Dastin's like, 
that doesn't sound right. That sounds right. kind of weird. We need to kind of figure out some more information. Alamet being and, a fictional city in this. In this, yes, yeah. just like Agrabah. Um, yeah, and he's basically kind of outvoted. So he's like, okay, mm-hmm. if we're going to attack, let me do it. Let me go right. do this. And he gets struck down again. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, sorry, you're not ready for this. Right. So Dastin puts his own plan in place. Uh, and does this because this is the way to minimize the casualties for his army. Right. And that all goes well. That invasion happens. They take over the city. And it's at that point that he encounters the messenger with the dagger. Yeah. Kills him and gets the dagger. Yes. So that all has still happened. So when he rewinds and goes back. So when he comes back to that moment after all the events of the movie have happened. Right. Um, it's back to when he first gets the dagger. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, uh, the forces have sacked the city. They have taken control of the city. Right. So that is all. Okay. So uh, he has been so, okay. uh, ignored twice now. Right. But in, yeah, my God, because I, yeah, I have a hard time keeping the, the, the damn timelines in this movie straight. So, but on his return, it is to a point where he has shown, hey, my plan worked. Yes, yes, he is He is the savior of the peoples, in, yep. in a sense, because he, he prevented this mass loss of life on both sides. On both sides, right, yeah. So so hypothetically, they might be more inclined to. I still think it's a jump. I still, <laughs> I still yeah. think it's well, a Well, remember, he tells his brother, Tuss, yeah. um, he tells him the thing that only Tuss would know. Would, would know, yeah. That's always, a, that's always a trope in time travel movies. That's always how you prove that you've time traveled. <laughs> Exactly, which is kind of ridiculous, and we can get into that at a later point about uh, time travel MacGuffins. Okay. Uh, But, yeah, so in the sense is – and then if Ben Kingsley had kept his cool, he he could have clevered his way out of it. He really could have. Which is a betrayal of that character, right? Like, I I would – I I think – Clever villains are prone to making a key mistake. And right. it's when you're so close to your goal and see it slipping from you, yeah. you act rashly. Because you're like, oh my God, I'm right here. I have it. I have it. I almost have it. Um, and the vizier makes that error. He makes that mistake. Yeah. So I'm – so what this, what this reminds me of is uh, the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones – where we see characters who have established themselves for several seasons of very well thought out, well written um, political uh, intrigue and murder, all of a sudden become, uh, like you said, like irrational. And I can appreciate that, like, yeah, as you get so close, you're like just, uh, but it, it always feels like a, a character betrayal because in your mind, you're like, this is somebody who has planned and planned and planned. And what I, you'd also want to believe would have some contingencies in place because they are so clever. So, like, not once did it enter Ben Kingsley's mind that, oh, I might get found out along the way or something might happen to my spy. Therefore, I need some sort of backup plan for for that. Because um, Ben Kingsley, again, is another, I think, completely miscast in this movie, but plays his role and acts it brilliantly. He's spectacular. I I love Ben Kingsley and everything that he's in. Um, Almost everything that he's in. Uh, And he plays this role very, very well. It's it's betrayed, though, in that, like, all of a sudden, I'm just going to lash out with passion. I'm not going to, like you said, clever my way out of this. Well, he is a video game villain. That's true. It's a a good point. (laughs) It's a good point. I, I, you have to think about that dynamic too. Is p- people are a little more if you're you're playing a video game character, they they've gotten better now. The writing yeah. has gotten better now, but these characters were a little more one dimensional. Yeah, that's 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 true. And he is at best his film version is at best two dimensional. I, I I I'll give you that. Given with like what he's working with, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Jake Gyllenhaal's performance is largely fine. Uh, his brothers are well. I really liked Garciv, honestly, the yeah. middle brother. Um, yeah, I, I think he's probably w- one of the better realized characters in the movie. And the the like hostility between them mm-hmm. 
was very interesting and kind of made it sweeter that he does come around and decide to listen. Yes. Um, and it, it, it is it, it is hostility that to me seems realistic in a sibling dynamic, especially one where something like, uh, you know, a royal inheritance might be on the line. But like there's always rivalries um, uh, in especially between middle and youngest children. Like there's there is a jockeying for position between those two, because typically speaking in a lot of family dynamics, the the older child has already had their moment in the spotlight and is, you know, just trying to like lead. Whereas middle child has always been trying to jockey for spotlight away from the older. And then when third child comes along, now middle child has to deal with both of them. And third child is just trying to get their, their attention period. Um, So I actually think that it's, it's one of the more believable dynamics in the movie is that between Garciv and Destin. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that the movie doesn't go, further it's interesting that the film doesn't go further to explore some of these like family politics stuff but it should be very clear that um dastin has no aims for the throne the throne will never come to him it's going to go to the eldest brother so in that way he is there's a competition for like father's favor because the king really does love dastin but yeah there are no designs for the throne for the throne itself um, and if there if there had been, that would have been I think there would have been way more tension between Garsev and Dastin. Yeah, because they definitely lean to have you thinking, oh, Garsev is kind of the one that's like, you are not even our real brother. You like you're nobody. Um, and, but they don't go that route. And, and you, even as we're talking about this, <clears throat> this is where I, I think maybe the sands of time was the wrong Prince of Persia game for them to try and base a movie off of. Because what we're describing right now would be a, I think, genuinely compelling uh, political intrigue of, uh, you know, like a Middle Eastern ascent to the, you know, the the, the top of, of the Persian Empire. I think that would have been a really fascinating and, uh, and, and rich story to tell and not lean so much on, but magical dagger. Um, yes, but this is post Pirates of the Caribbean, I where know. we're trying to capture that lightning in a bottle a again, a- again and again and again, and they yes. just yeah no I I know I it's actually so um, it's a slight tangent, but it, it is important to almost take this movie in context of the period that it was made, which was exactly that it was right out of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and. Um, Disney was essentially looking for its next big blockbuster franchise that could that could capture that sort of swashbuckling energy, and they thought it was going to be this, and um, it just it just didn't it just does not land. I think it could have been this if they had done better, if they had done better with their casting, a little more authentic casting. Yes, um, lean into a little more plot, a little less. Uh, Leia and Han Solo banter. Sure. Um, more Alfred Molina. Just give us more Alfred Molina. We- <laughs> would you Would you argue that he was basically supposed to be the Jack Sparrow of this movie? I likened him to a Barbosa. Oh, okay. Interesting. You know, because it, like Barbosa yep. as the unlikely ally of the That's true. back half of the trilogy. Yep. Um, the hassanson's introduction in mm-hmm. the third act felt very shoehorned in because i was, was like very nothing led up to this no we're just like oh by the way the vizier has a secret uh black ops team it, 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 once again so ill established and and very poorly established yeah just it has and then because, the movie for a little while just becomes about that right and it's it's uh just it's it's poorly it's poorly introduced, poorly executed, and there's not really a good payoff from that. Right. It You're was like, just... Oh, weird bad guy dies. No. Yeah. Like, okay. we're, we're just going to... Just in, in terms of... Um, like you said early on that, that you thought that this was a, a, a tighter way to go about this movie. I disagree slightly in that this movie felt very scattered to me. Um, and this is a this is a perfect example. If the Hassansons had been introduced early on, and a lot of the movie was just about Jake Gyllenhaal avoiding these like mystical killers, um, 
the eventual buildup to to the battle with them might have been much better payoff and, and much more interesting. But it is it just everything about that plot line falls flat. And it's because it's a third act plot line. You don't introduce new plot threads in the third act. Y- you are tying them up. I should um, there's a huge criticism that I had of the uh, HBO series The Outsider, which actually it's not really a criticism of the series. It's a criticism of Stephen King, um, where a character is introduced in that series in the last two or three episodes, um, which in the book would have been third act brand new character introduced, has almost nothing to do in the show. Now, I haven't read the book, so it's possible that he is much more integral in in the book, but I was like, why are we introducing new plot threads and new characters that are immaterial to the plot in the third act? Like, why why is... This is not when we are supposed to be introducing new things. And that's a huge problem that I have with the the Hassansons um, plotline. It's actually when I completely lost interest in this movie. Um, because I, I thought it was fine up until that point, And then I was like, I'm bored now. Well, it's, it's a, it's a way for them to shoehorn a little more of the video game elements yeah. because the, the, this adapts, it pulls stuff, not just from Sansa time, but, um, like kind of the whole game trilogy, True. which, uh, I've never, I've only played like probably partway through Sands of time. I've never, I was never able to play the whole trilogy. Yeah. And so I was doing a brief kind of plot run through, but like, okay, what happens? Uh, that shit gets convoluted really quick, just in the trilogy. <laughs> like, it kind of goes a little jumps the shark a little. Well, it's just it gets very twisted because then you start dealing with like conf- different timelines and who's what, where sort okay. of thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's messy. Uh, so I'll just go straight into like kind of video game nods. Yeah, go for it. Um, the Hassansons, uh, if I remember right, they were an antagonist in like the second uh, game of that trilogy. They are also what sets up Assassin's Creed. Sure, Assassin's uh, Creed is based on the Hassansons. Yes, well, because Hassanson in the in the game they're called Hassansons. It's a play on the um, actual word, which is like Hashashin. Yes, yeah, something which is where we get the word assassin. From. Assassin. Yep. Yeah. So uh, the the plot around the vizier, the sands of time, the the snarky priestess that ends up falling for you, like that is all stuff from the game. Okay, great. Uh, the platforming was brought to life <laughs> in a nice way. This was uh, this was peak parkour time. I say I I don't give Jake Gyllenhaal a lot of credit for his British accent, but I do give him credit for um, putting on some muscle and learning some parkour. To, to do this movie. I, I actually... Yeah, think he that, bulked up a bit. That was like... Yeah. Impressive physique, Jake. Yeah. He he looked good and he he nailed uh, some of the movement. Um, I don't think it was all him. I'm sure he had a stunt double, but I give him credit for learning enough of it. Just like when we talked about Blue Crush, the fact that um, Kate Bosworth learned enough surfing to get that role is impressive. Yeah. And the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal learned enough parkour to be able to do some of it on screen, that's, that's dedication to the craft. I love parkour. <laughs> I do. I unabashedly, I think it's amazing. I wish I knew how to do it. I was a little too late for me to learn. Um, but I think it's it's incredible. And if you throw parkour into something, I will watch it and be pleased. Like, no matter what. I, I might be in the minority on this, and that's fine. But I really enjoyed it when they put it in Casino Royale. Again, going back to Bond referencing. Uh, that whole chase sequence is parkour. It, it works in that movie. It does. Well, and it largely works in Prince of Persia, I would argue. Okay. Um, um, have you seen Paul Blart Mall Cop? Why? What? Why would I? Does he... Wait, which one is that one? Well, is that, that the Seth Rogen or the Kevin James one? Kevin James. Okay. Uh, does Kevin James do parkour? No, but there is a parkour oh, gang okay. in it. And they're... Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to watch it now. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I think you might want to watch this movie, Josh. There's a parkour Heck game. yeah. <laughs> you sold it for me. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I'm not even kidding. Unironically, Paul Blart Mar- Mall Cop is kind of an enjoyable movie. It's very charming. Weird. I know. Okay. It Weird. is. But there is a parkour game. Um, but the... And then the... The sands of time itself, which again we've we haven't gone much into uh, the dagger and the actual sands of time mechanic. Yeah, that's true. Now in the game, if I remember right, you had three or four uses of the dagger, like per yes. level sort of thing. I can't remember if it like recharged over time or or, or whatever, or if you had to like collect sand. I was trying um, to remember that as well. Yeah, 
But basically, yes, it's for when in the game you screw up, you hit that and you rewind. Right. Just like a few seconds or whatever. And you rewind and you come back through it. I feel like they waste it a bit in this movie because we only get two sequences where it's used. Uh, well, no, we do get three sequences it's used, I guess. But I was like, the first one is largely wasted and right. kind of used for comedic effect where he's like, what's going on? Just keeps hitting the button. Yep. Um, and I think he, he probably does it probably the amount of times you can do it in the game in one oh, time. Oh, okay. That's a nice little nod. I, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And so likewise, by that time in the game, you would have run out of sand. Likewise, in that moment, he's used all the, the magic sand. Which is an interesting tutorial for how your new magic weapon in the game would have worked, right? Like, oh, yeah. you've now fucked it up, and so now you have to figure out how to recharge it. Yeah, or now you're actually going to die. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. The um, best use of the dagger, and I think one that points like directly to like the finale of the movie, is when he stabs himself in front of Tuss to convince him of his innocence, and Tuss uses the dagger and rewinds that whole moment. Yeah. Uh, right before Tusk gets... When the brothers die, it's like, it's sad. It's rough. Like, they, it, I think the film does that very well. Yeah, it's it's very... it, it It's rough. Yeah. Um, I think that the best use of the Sands of Time mechanic in the movie is the uh, the snakes when the, the camp is taken over by the the mambas or the the vipers and he watches it all go down basically memorizes where each snake is going to come from rewinds it and kills all the snakes before that i was like that's that's a that is a that is an intriguing uh use of this mechanic and i actually would have appreciated a few scenes of like unreliable narrator where we see him do things that are superhuman only to as the audience have to put together He's been like using we, the dagger. They don't show us the dagger right. being used. Yes. That's interesting. I, I like that idea. I think that would have been really, really cool because we see it happen. That's it. You could have set it up with a scene like with the snakes. Do it once where you're like, oh my God, like this is how he got his way through this. But then show a couple more of these instances of him just being like a step ahead of everything and leave the audience wondering, did he use the dagger? Is that like, you know, like, is that how he's doing this? And uh, yeah, not not always call it out explicitly. Yeah. And then so later Assassin's Creed, again, yeah. considering it the spiritual successor, uh, they would change the game over mechanic again mm. in like in the narrative way where something would happen, you'd screw up in the game. Yeah. And then because you're in a memory device, which that oh. whole plot line was always weird. Yeah. Like they would be like, wait, that's not how it happened. Let's go back. Because oh. <laughs> the memory oh, did not unfold the way it's supposed to. So it's, it's, it's that's played so, off like it's a glitch. It was all just a dream all along. That's that's a little cheap. <laughs> well, I think that is the um, probably the biggest criticism of the Assassin's Creed yeah. franchise for a little while is that the present day like story plot was always very weird. Yeah. And it was just because it was a framing narrative for these back in time stories. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my, my two largest issues with this movie is the almost blackface and the it's the the banter. Too much just, banter. Too much banter between Dastin and the priestess. Yeah. I I did not enjoy it on either of them. It was it was there was too much of it. It, it, it yeah, there there seems to be um with movies that don't intrinsically trust the audience, what we what we see unfold is um, a film that feels like it has to establish and then re-establish points. And I think that's the um, that's what slows down the pacing of a lot of movies. And and there are there are moments in this film that really drag. And that's I think that's one of the problems is it, it drags quite a bit and then becomes unbelievably scattered. And uh, and then you're like, well, well, I'm I'm not sure like what I'm even supposed to be paying attention to in this story anymore. Um, and yeah, the 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 banter is something that you can probably get away with once or twice, and then you just sort of have to leave it. And you're like, okay, that's we understand that's the relationship. If they have dialogue again that advances the storyline, it can be quippy and it can have that banter, but we can't just like sit and lean on these moments. Um, 
and when it overplays its hand like that, it, it, it does. It just it feels like it's just not trusting the audience. This this movie made me think of the Scorpion King a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to argue whose diversity casting was worse. But honestly, I think Prince of Persia's is a little worse. Prince of Persia's is way worse. Yeah. Um, I, I just I don't understand what we were thinking here. And I think even post-production, like Jake Gyllenhaal was like, ah, I don't know if I really should have done this. No, Jake. I mean, you did fine, but it's just, it's not a role that was meant for you. It was not a role that was meant for you. Yeah. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal actually had some interesting things to, to say just about being in like a summer blockbuster that he just didn't enjoy. And he didn't ever want to go back into like a superhero-esque role ever again. Um, which, I mean, he'd go on to be like supporting in uh, as Mysterio many, many years later. But um, he's he never wanted to like headline a blockbuster a- a- again after this. I do wonder how much of it is just like I... I shouldn't have been in that role. And I'm I'm just curious about the the cast in general. I mean, the fact of the matter is is that um the leader of the Hassassins was Gisli Urn Gardashon, who is Norwegian. Like it it almost it comes to a point where it's like were you actively trying not to bring people who were, you know, from the from this culture into these roles like it's it's so far from the the casting is just so completely off that it's it's quite obvious yeah i i just i don't i don't know what was going on here i don't yeah, know what and, the thinking was it's and i think that's one of the things that is nice about hollywood right now is that they are largely um uh, they're trying to be more aware of that and trying to be a little more authentic Although they still just kind of revert to Michelle Yeoh, every Asian person they need. Yeah. Um, no, and it, it is it's it's interesting from that standpoint where um, you know we're we're in a we're in a period where like the the greater representation is is like quite a bit of focus, almost to the point that for for some people it's uh, it's dragging focus because uh, they you know there's, people make all kinds of arguments about like should this person really be in this role X Y Z. This is a great movie where I think it, the opposite is true in that it drags focus that this this cast is so, so white and um, lacks any kind of diversity that is authentic to the story that it's trying to tell. Um, it is it's distracting. And um, the you know, there's the the trope nowadays like, oh, you couldn't make that movie now and uh, you know it's, you know we've, we've said that about Tropic Thunder and people say it about like blazing saddles. Um, I, I, I wonder how much of that is true and how much of it is like, are we, are we just overestimating our inability to do sarcastic movies, but for something played seriously like this one was, I don't think you do this movie nowadays, not the way that they cast it. I think that it, it would require a completely different casting and this would not have made it up to production with the cast that it has in it. I would love to see a Prince of Persia franchise, uh, like with exist i i yes enjoy the i guess the exoticness of the the stories like delve into uh arabian and persian folklore yes a bit like it would be amazing um but yes th- this casting was just largely inappropriate well and, and like you said this is a mythology that is like it's ripe and and it and it is it's um it's compelling and fascinating every time. So I think one of the reasons that Aladdin is still one of my favorite Disney movies is because even animated, some of the visuals of, you know, their interpretation of, of the, you know, the faraway lands of the Middle East are so striking and sweeping and beautiful. And this movie has visuals like that. Like, you know, your obligatory, at the end into the sunset moment where you see the sands whipping up and the dunes that go on forever. That to me is like I just I I look at that and I go there is so much mystery to this and and I I want more of this mysterious mythology, um, and part of that maybe because you know growing up obviously in the United States like we didn't have as much exposure to um, uh, to this uh, you know to these fantasy realms or or to these fairy tales, um, but I think that there there is tons of potential in this in the stories it just it has to be done right um because i mean i would i would just love to see more of this done correctly 
And if this conversation is sounding familiar to you guys, it's probably because we touched on similar points in our Aladdin episode. This episode is a spiritual successor to uh, Aladdin King of Thieves. (laughs) (laughs) It is unofficially a sequel uh, podcast rewatch episode to Aladdin and the Prince of Thieves. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Um, So final thoughts on on this one. This is a... uh, The question being, if it were not Prince of Persia... Would you like this movie better? And for for my part, I can unequivocally say no. Like, um, it, it, this would have had to have been a completely different mythology in order for this cast to work in my mind. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of in line with you. My my issues aren't the way they chose to adapt the video game stuff. I actually think that stuff was done largely well. well. Yeah. And this movie is enjoyable to watch if you can get past. The casting, yeah. <laughs> um, like you can have fun with it. You know exactly what to expect with this movie. Again, Alfred Molina is probably one of the reasons to watch He's this movie. He's awesome. delightful. Yep. Um, Gemma Arterton is lovely. She's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I I enjoy watching her. I don't think she's the best actress in the world. No, but she's she's fine. Um, yeah. I saw her neck. I didn't care one way or the other. Didn't didn't make you feel old? No, I was. It was fine. It was fine. It's, she's got a great neck, got a nice face. She's got wonderful glaring eyes. You know, it's 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 fine. Yeah, it, it, sure. So sure. it's it's currently on Disney Plus. If you guys wanted to take a look at it, uh, give us your thoughts, your impressions. Are we being too woke for you with the our our, our casting? woes uh let us know <laughs> i'd actually i'd be i'd be very curious um to to get uh to get a take on that because um i'm i i just i don't know how you see this cast and hear the british accents and not be like this this movie is it, again it's just so colonialist it's, i don't know if you remember but this was one of the trailers that would play in the prop warehouse yes it was nauseam. yep and i remember being like Oh, Prince of Persia, interesting. But they would always play the clip of Jake Gyllenhaal going, "Don't press your luck," and I would just be like, "Why, Jake?" I know. I and I know. don't think he's bad. I think he's a perfectly fine actor. He's not someone I gravitate towards, but I like. I think he is great, and I'm so happy that Hollywood made a film where he and Tobey Maguire played brothers. Because I was like, "Yeah, yep." Uh, but I also always think of the Family Guy clip. Where it's Jake and Maggie arguing, and their dad oh, is like, "Oh, I'm more unlikely. kids. Kids, <laughs> you're you're both, you're both awful. just awful. Yes. <laughs> I'm more off-putting. Well, I'm a bigger box office drag. <laughs> yeah. you are just both awful. It's not fair because I, I enjoy them. Did you know? I came across this tidbit. Apparently, Christopher Nolan considered Jake for Bruce Wayne in really his Dark Knight trilogy." Which is why I think it's all the funnier that Maggie Gyllenhaal replaced Katie Holmes. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. Um, I, I mean, I didn't see Robert Pattinson as, but then once I saw him in the role, I was like, okay, I get it. Um, I, I definitely don't see Jake Gyllenhaal. I know. Well, I mean, you never do until you actually see someone in the role. You know, so Michael I, I Keaton was a big risk as Batman. He, I mean, that's true. He doesn't. He does not like outwardly scream Batman. Um, I think that I, uh, this is going to sound odd. I, it's it's in the way he articulates. Like um, Jake Gyllenhaal to me is a li- he's a little bit more mumbly. He's not in this movie because he's you know doing he an ha- accent. He's doing an accent right. Um, but like just the way that he speaks to me comes across a little bit softer and not as. Um, it doesn't have a, a, as much intensity on it. He doesn't have a commanding tone in his voice. Yeah, he, he, or if he, we have, we haven't seen it. Yeah, I think that's that, that's fair. And and that's what I would... I mean, Batman is so much more than just the presence. It's also it's the voice, right? Like, it's being able to um, command villainy's attention with the way that you speak. I mean, uh, Christian Bale maybe overdid it, but... <laughs> you know. He couldn't breathe out of his nose. I know, I know. <laughs> All right, next week... What are we doing next week? Where, where, where are we headed next? Next week, I think we should uh, turn off the video game console All and, right. and go to the table, play some tabletop gaming. 
We're going to do Battleship. Battleship. Oh, God. We're going to do Battleship. Wait. I can. (laughs) (laughs) I have never, so I have never seen Battleship. Really? No, because it was. I saw trailers for a movie based on a board game, Battleship, and I saw the trailers, and I was like, "This looks so fucking stupid." It is, and I never watched it. I've got news. It is, <laughs> like, not to give away my opinion before we get into the episode next week, but I don't like this movie. <laughs> I read a Wikipedia synopsis the other day, and I was like, "Yep, this is going to be a terrible romp," and. I, I can't wait. I don't want to give anything away. I'm just, I'm already like, who who thought this was the good idea? That's what we can discuss next that time. That is what we're going to discuss. I think that'll be an easier one to do a, would you like it better if it wasn't Battleship? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the plot necessitates it being Battleship. I know. So, all uh, right. That's our teaser. That's anyway. our teaser. So tune in next week for Battleship. <laughs> Yes. And in the meantime, guys, again, questions, thoughts, concerns, yeah. anything like give us something to respond to. Let us let us know what you're uh, what you're thinking. And uh, we we will we will respond. Yes. And as always, thank you for listening. See you next week.